it is quite a strange thing to me how people respond to impending death. In my nearly 20 years in pastoral ministry, I've been with many people in the weeks leading up to death and sometimes in their final moments. I've held the hands of Christian saints who have literally asked me to pray that the Lord would hurry up and take them. And I've also sat there and seen the terror-filled eyes of people who are desperately afraid and wanting to avoid the death that is inevitably coming. To those people, I've shared the gospel. The good news that although you will die soon, if you put your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you can believe that he gave his life for you to pay the penalty of your sin, if you will even in your final moments give glory to Christ, then death is not to be feared. It is simply the doorway to beholding Christ face to face. Some have heard and repented and given their lives to Jesus. A beautiful and amazing moment to see somebody instantly at peace, knowing where they're going, knowing what the future holds. However, the majority have refused. It seems there's only one thing they fear more than death, and that is to bend their knee to Jesus. In defiant fear, they go to the grave, refusing to acknowledge his rule. And instead, all that awaits is judgment. This is the peace that is such a tragedy, so awful. Eternal life is right there, waiting to be given. But instead, defiantly, I did it my way, holds until the bitter end. I start this way this morning because we will see in our passage, you will look at Pilate and wonder, how can he do what he does? How can he be with Jesus, hear from Jesus, see the reality that's going on with Jesus, and yet reject him? But the truth is, so many do it every single day. They've heard the truth about Jesus. They've seen the change he wrought in friends or children or parents. They may have even experienced moments of grace in their own life, and yet they reject him, throw him away for worldly gain. And in that rebellion, they gain a taste of the world, sure, but lose eternal life. Don't see Pilate this morning. See everyone who has an opportunity to accept or reject Jesus. Right? That is what our story reveals to us. Jesus is the Son of God. Each person must bend their knee to him and reverence and to fail to do anything else is to reject Christ as Lord. 
and to pass into eternity without him. Right? This is the weight of the story in the Gospel of John that we are up to. If you have your Bible there, you can open up to chapter 19. We are rapidly drawing to a close in our journey through the Gospel of John. John chapter 19. We're going to be reading 1 to 16 this morning. I'll start with 1 to 5. John 19, 1 to 5. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up and saying to him, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I'm bringing bringing him out to you, let you know I find no grounds for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. All right, remember how we finished last week. Pilate found that Jesus was innocent and had no grounds to charge him. But the crowds pleaded for the release of Barabbas, a convicted revolutionary. So, why do we read that Pilate has Jesus flogged when he's just been found innocent? Right? Sound a little weird? Hopefully it does to you. Hopefully we don't get that kind of justice going on too often. Well, Pilate is a political man. His first love, I think, is himself, and secondly, Rome. And whilst he doesn't simply want to condemn an innocent man, nor does he want a riot from the crowds. So here is what Pilate is hoping for. In order to appease the crowds, he hopes that by having Jesus punished a bit, flogged a bit, and then released to the crowds, that the crowds are going to be happy with that. They've obviously got a beef with Jesus Pilate doesn't really care whether he's uh, guilty or not. Let's just punish him to some extent and then hopefully the crowds and everyone will be okay with it. If, in terms of Jesus getting flogged, you only have one image come to mind, this won't make much sense to you. Anyone seen the Passion of the Christ? A lot of people. Anyone couldn't watch the flogging scene? There's a few hands going, I did, with a cushion like this, and Beth giving me lots of rubbish. Um, Too much for me, I couldn't watch it. Well, here's the thing, you need to understand this. The Romans had three forms of flogging. Firstly, the fustigatio, meaning more or less a beating with a cane. It was for minor crimes and usually accompanied with a stern warning, don't do it again. Secondly, there was the flagellation a severe beating for more serious crimes. And thirdly, there was the verberation, and that was the one with either bits of bone or metal at the end, which is depicted in the Passion of the Christ, ripping flesh from the body, sometimes even disemboweling the people who got flogged by it. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus was flogged after the crucifixion sentence, and John tells us that Jesus was flogged before the crucifixion sentence. Who's right? Anyone guess? Both. 
So Pilate here has the first one done to Jesus, the punishment for minor crime, basically a beating with a cane and Pilate saying to Jesus, I don't want to see you again, right? That's, that's kind of what's going on. The, after the crucifixion sentence, Marx records the verberation, the last one, that kind of flogging. So this is why they're both historically accurate. Uh, and the first account, Jesus gets uh, hit with a cane, has the crown of thorns put on his head. Now, more than likely, they were the big long thorns that would have drawn blood. Not long-term damaging, certainly painful. Uh, and they slap him. Uh, so no doubt, and put the purple robe on him, when Jesus is brought before the crowd, there's blood dripping down his face. He's puffy around the eyes and cheeks from being slapped. He's wearing a purple robe and he has been beaten with a cane. Obviously, he has been punished. But at this stage, he would not have been in a life-threatening situation. Okay, at this stage, he has been horribly treated, but he would have been okay. Isn't it absolutely ironic, though, that they crown Jesus, they put the purple robe on Jesus, signifying royalty, and hail him as king of the Jews? They're 100% right, aren't they? In a horrible, horrible, horrible misjudgment of how they're applying it. But nonetheless, that is what they are doing. So, as I said, after this mockery, after this flogging, after this attempted humiliation of Christ, uh, they then want to bring Jesus out before the crowds and say, isn't that enough? Isn't that punishment that this guy deserved? And aren't you happy now to let him go? I think that's the intention of Pilate. Well, we'll read the next bit of our passage, which clearly they're not okay with, and it's not enough. So we'll read John 19, 6 to 11. When the chief priests and temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was more afraid than ever. He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. When the Jewish leaders see him, rather than saying it's enough, they cry out, crucify him, the worst form of Roman punishment, the cruelest torture for the worst criminals. Such as their hatred of Jesus' power or the threat of him taking their power. Pilate initially has had enough of their nonsense 
and says to crucify him themselves, which he knows full well they do not have the authority to do. Pilate is just making it abundantly clear that he finds no grounds for crucifying Jesus. In him saying, crucify him yourselves, he's pointing out to them, they don't have the authority. If the Jews had gone and crucified Jesus, they would be guilty of murder. And Pilate could have them crucified. Right? So Pilate's just making the point, there is no grounds for his crucifixion, you ought to let him go. Now, for the Jews who want him dead, this is a problem. So the Jews need to change tact. As we've said, they've already accused Jesus with being a king who is a potential threat to Rome. Pilate has disregarded the charge. He doesn't see in Jesus a political threat. Such is the commitment of the Jews to have Jesus crucified that they come up with another plan. And this time, that is to have him crucified according to the breaking of Jewish law. So the first charge was treason. He's a king who is a threat to Rome. Pilate says, I really don't see him as a threat. Let him go. Second one is, he's broken our law, and that's why you should crucify him. How might that work? Why would Pilate be interested in that? Well, Pilate is charged with keeping the peace. Part of his brief as governor over the region is to keep the peace. If the Jews can convince Pilate that the continuing existence of Jesus is a threat to the Jewish peace, then perhaps him being a Jewish lawbreaker is enough grounds for Pilate to deal with him. The charge against blasphemy, of course, in Scripture is what? The whole assembly stoning the person to death. Now, this brings to the forefront the question here. Their accusation is that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. Now, what's interesting about that is this. Claiming to be the Son of God is not automatic blasphemy. Psalms actually records um, God's King as a Son of God. Sources outside of the Bible used Messiah and Son of God interchangeably. So being a Son of God is not necessarily enough to bring this charge of blasphemy. The real issue, what has them so wound up, is that Jesus also seemed to claim that He had the same rights as God, the same authority as God, and was in fact God. Right? This is the problem. It's not so much the title Son of God, but Jesus seemed to be saying that the Son of God was equal to God. That is what brings the charge. This is what they are so worked up about. And of course, they're dead right, aren't they? Isn't this what Jesus has been saying? Before Abraham was... What did he say? I am. In other words, he's eternally existing before Abraham was, before the father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, before Abraham was, I am. At the burning bush, when Moses says, God, what is your name? What can I call you? And God's response is, I am. I am eternal. 
I am all-powerful. I am all-knowing. I will have always existed. I always will exist. I simply am. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Don't mistake what he was claiming, and the Jews certainly didn't. Right? Anyone out there today who tries to say, oh, he never claimed to be God? Really? You can see how the Jews felt about that. Right? They are desperate to have this man put to death. Now, in our passage that we just read, when they say this, when they bring this accusation, it says Pilate is more afraid. Anyone find that interesting? He hasn't really showed fear up to this point, has he? I mean, it could mean that he's more afraid now of a riot. It could mean now that he's more afraid of something else. But it can also be translated, became afraid, or Pilate was very afraid. So, not really sure which way to go on that. Either way, we get the gist. Something here makes Pilate afraid. Well, what's that? The term, son of God, had very messianic overtones to the Jews. But it had a very different sound to Roman ears. Romans had many gods. And a son of God was a person literally, perhaps the offspring of one of the gods, who would spend some intimate time with a human, and they would have a half-human, half-god offspring. Or could be given divine power by one of the gods, a demigod. Either way, if Jesus was in fact one of these demigods with special powers, think Hercules. I know that was a Greek myth, right? But this is your thinking about what the Romans understood. Pilate had just had him flogged. Just think about that for a moment. If you remember your Greek mythologies about the powers of Hercules and you just had him flogged, wouldn't you get nervous? That's what's going on in Pilate's mind here. Hang on a second. Is this guy a specially, divinely appointed, powerful figure? If so, this could change things a little bit in terms of the threat that he poses to Pilate. Pilate immediately, after the proclamation of the Jews, walks Jesus back into the private place, out the back, and what's his first question? Where are you from? Right, we've changed tact here with Pilate slightly. He wants to know, who are you? What's your background? Are you someone I actually need to fear? Are you indeed a son of God? That's his question. Now, Jesus doesn't answer. It's not that he hasn't been willing to talk, he, he already has. But Pilate's already dismissed the claims of Jesus to be the king of a spiritual realm. Pilate has already dismissed that opportunity of hearing the good news. And we see that reinforced by Pilate's next line. He's annoyed by Jesus' silence and tries to force Jesus to acknowledge his authority. Don't you know, it's me alone who has the power of life or death to release you or crucify you. Don't you know, Jesus, you are governed by my rules. 
my authority, my power, so answer my question. Of course, Jesus' response is critical for us to understand. Pilate has no authority over Jesus at all. No one does, unless it is given by the Father. Church, God is sovereign and in complete control. And what we have to hold the tension of is the fact that although God is sovereign and in control, Pilate is still morally responsible for his own sin. God has not altered Pilate's will for him to act this way. We, you, all of us, are born as slaves to sin. Our natural inclination is to oppose the things of God. Our desire is to do what is wrong. But God, in His sovereign rule, sets the boundaries, the parameters of our sinful will. God could have intervened against Pilate's will if He chose, couldn't He? Think God was limited by Pilate? No. Of course he could have intervened if he chose. But God sets the parameters, and in this case, the will of Pilate to look after himself first and foremost accords with the will of God to send Jesus to the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. God sets the boundaries and parameters. Pilate's sinful will as his own. It's all within the greater will and plan of God. Okay, that's what we see playing out in this passage. So, says Jesus, even though Pilate here is sinful, conducting a farcical trial, the one who handed Jesus to Pilate has the greater sin. In other words, Pilate is dealing with the consequences of someone else's genuine desire to kill Jesus. Who might Jesus be referring to here? Well, people quickly turned to Judas, but it seems unlikely. He dropped out of the story completely, and he did not hand Jesus to Pilate. Now, we can't be sure, church, but if you're wanting to think this through yourself, it seems likely that Jesus is referring here to Caiaphas, the high priest. It was he, if you remember, who said, it's better for one man to die. It was Caiaphas who came up with the final plan of killing Jesus. In Mark, we learn that Caiaphas questioned Jesus and condemned him to death before handing him to Pilate. So the Jews should have been the one who recognized the Messiah and will be held in greater condemnation for being the ones who actually hand him to Pilate. So it seems like that's who Jesus is referring to when he says someone is uh, of greater sin. This, of course, raises another quick issue. Can we have greater and lesser sins? Yes, most definitely. All sin will keep you from God. In the eyes of your condemnation, in the eyes of you falling short of God's required standard, a lie is the same as murder. In the sense of, 
any sin and all sin will keep you from perfection and God's requirement for salvation is nothing less than 100% holy perfection. So in that sense, all sin is the same and in that sense, we are all guilty. Amen? It is all the same. However, that doesn't mean that all punishment is the same. doesn't mean the reaction from God will always be the same. The Scriptures is quite clear that God hates some sins more than others. So the reality is all sin will keep you short from the glory of God. That doesn't mean that all sins will be treated the same way by God. Okay, They will all result, however, in punishment. So some sins can be greater than others, and we see that numerous occasions in the Scriptures. Um, now, the same sacrifice of Jesus pays the penalty of all those sins. Right? So in Christ, we are forgiven from the lie to the murder. Okay? But it doesn't mean that God treats all sin exactly the same way. And handing over Jesus to be crucified, I would suggest, is not a good idea putting it out there. All right, next part of our passage, John 19, 12 to 16. John 19, 12 to 16. From that moment on, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away. It's one of the most horrible passages in the entirety of this scripture, in my opinion. We'll get there. Pilate again tries to release Jesus. As I said, Pilate is not convinced he is a revolutionary threat to Rome. He is not worried about the charge of blasphemy. But now the Jews expose a real issue for Pilate, one where they get a lot more and instant success. Note what they say, you are not Caesar's friend if you kill Jesus, if you don't kill Jesus. He's a rival king. Think of the ridiculous, awful, tragic irony here. The Sanhedrin, do you remember the Sanhedrin? They are the Jewish leadership. There were two leading factions within Judaism. We have the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin was the committee made up of Sadducees and Pharisees who ruled over all Jewish affairs. They ran the temple, they ran the synagogues, they basically ran the life for Jewish people. The Sanhedrin here are saying to Pilate, we are more of a friend to Rome than you are. 
right? Get that language that they're saying? You are not Caesar's friend if you don't kill Jesus. What's the converse of that? We are Caesar's friends because we want to kill Jesus. They have seen the miracles. They have talked to witnesses. They have heard Jesus teach with authority. They know he can raise the dead. But so in love with their positions of authority, so in love with their sin, that these men who are avowed to hate Rome are now professing their love. It's incredible. These are the very people I spoke about right at the start. Those who will never know peace at the end of their life. Refusing to bend their knee to Jesus. They bend their knee to this world and its desires. And in a short time, all of that will be gone. And they will have nothing but an eternity to regret that they rejected the king of life. Pilate must respond to this accusation now. We know historically we can read that the Jews had put in an official complaint about Pilate to Caesar before. The Sanhedrin had put in an official complaint to say, we're not happy with this guy. He is in no doubt that they would be willing to lodge this complaint again that Pilate is not a friend of Caesar's because he supported a revolutionary. Instantly, Pilate takes the beamer seat, the judgment seat, where official pronouncement can occur. This is the same word the Bible uses to tell us all that we will stand before Jesus on the beamer seat, the judgment seat, as he judges our actions for Jesus. Did we use what he gave us for his glory, or did we squander it? It is the judgment of Christians by our king as to whether or not we have been loyal subjects. Make no mistake about it, if you are a Christian here this morning, you will face the judgment of Jesus Christ. Not in terms of your salvation, because that is the free gift of grace in Jesus, but Jesus has given you gifts and abilities, talents, so to speak, in the Scriptures to be used for Him and His glory alone, and He will hold you to an account as for whether or not you lived for Jesus or whether you buried it in the sand and lived for worldly pleasures. You will face a judgment, and you can't hide this life doing nothing for Jesus, living for worldly pleasures, and think that it's going to be wonderful when you face that judgment. Church, take seriously the commands of Christ to live for Christ, to forsake worldly dreams and pleasures, 
to take what he's given you and live each day for his glory. This is the reality of the judgment seat of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 3, it says, All will be burned away as through fire, and only what was done for the Lord will last. Only what was done for the Lord in this life will last. Church, when you sit before that judgment seat, and your life goes through the fire, what's going to be left? That's the question. Pilate, for a last time, attempts to set Jesus free. Here is your king. To which they respond, we have no king but Caesar. Now the Hebrew scriptures repeatedly insist the king of Israel is God himself. The Davidic kings, the kings after David, are legitimate, at least only in the sense of they are seen as vassal kings under the kingship of God. By insisting they have no king but Caesar, they're not only rejecting Jesus' messianic claims, they are abandoning abandoning Israel's messianic hopes as a matter of principle. Rejecting any claim, we have no king but Caesar, this ultimately disowns the kingship of God himself. If, if our king is Rome, then they have no other king. This is a disavowal of God himself that they are prepared to make to crucify the Messiah. I told you, it's one of the bleakest passages in the Bible, isn't it? When Israel, God's people, disavow God's kingship for a worldly king. That's what we've just read in our passage. Thus Jesus is handed over to the wishes of the crowd and into the hands of soldiers to carry out the crucifixion. The truth is, most people today would cry out, I have no king but myself. And they would proudly yell it all the way to the grave. When they will awaken to the face of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who will condemn them for their rebellion. Coming to Jesus means accepting him as king with all rights to govern your life as he freely chooses but you gain eternal life and life in his perfect kingdom forevermore. Church, that is the true choice that sits before us all. To bow before the king, gaining life forever. Or go defiantly to the grave saying, I'm my own king and facing nothing but condemnation and damnation. Jesus offers us life. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Let's pray.